gives a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There they are with a coin with Caesar's idolatrous image of it, declaring Caesar to be God, asking what they thought was a trick political question about paying taxes, and Jesus makes it about worship. He turns our attention to what we should value most. Always, every time, without exception. He's turning our attention to our neighbor in need. Those left out by a culture that does nothing better than show partiality by telling some you are out and others you are in. I'm in on you where your love ran red and my sin washed white. I owe to you. I owe to Jesus. How you would define the abundant life? How do you how do you get at it? How would you define it? Is it an accomplishment by some objective measure? Is the abundant life success in your job? Is it some measure of happiness? Is it family, relationships? Is it money or lifestyle or possessions? How does your Christian faith help answer this question? Jesus said in John's Gospel in the 10th chapter, the thief comes to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But what is the abundant life and how do you get it? We don't even have to turn on the television to watch famous preachers give stadium crowds the prosperity gospel answer to this question. Here is part of the faith statement from a congregation just in our town, uh, not far from here. And as I researched this a little bit, I realized I could have spent 20 minutes reading similar faith statements from other communities of faith in the area. It reads, we understand from the scriptures that the covenant of seed time and harvest is the secret behind our exemption from hard times. Also, it is the gateway to a world of supernatural material blessings. Because through giving, our supply lines are opened. At our council meeting here at Prince of Peace on Tuesday this week, we were struggling with some concerning trends showing that our giving still isn't just quite keeping up with our budget for ministry, all the outreach and ministry that we share together. It's just, it's just a bit underfunded recently. Uh, we had a good response to a, a request to kind of do a one-time gift at the end of the summer to help us make up for those lean months, but we're still, we're still struggling with it. Um, we talked about some ways that we might address this issue among our own community of faith, but I will tell you that none of those ways involve myself or Pastor Natalia standing before you to claim that if you just kind of increase your giving, your life will get better or easier or that you will get the promotion that you deserve 
or you will realize the healing that you yearn for, or in some more blatant and overt cases, even get the home or the car of your dreams. A couple of Sundays ago, I was talking about the incredible resume of uh, St. Paul, of the Apostle Paul. He provided, he provided an impressive list of his credentials. Some of them he was born with and others he had attained through study and sacrifice and intellect and promotion. But then at the end of that passage, Paul threw it all out. He said, I count it all as garbage compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Garbage. All of it. And then Paul said something so contrary to the way that the Christian faith is so often marketed in our day. Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. I said this morning, if there were if Twitter was around during the days of Paul, he would have blown up. I mean, that he was deep and he could say a lot and, you know, what is it, 142 characters? I mean, we could spend the rest of the year meditating and unpacking just that sentence. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Anybody else want that? Today's gospel, a dispute breaks out over whether we ought to pay tax to the empire, to Caesar. A timely question, to be sure. It's, it's a little bit curious because Jesus has not mentioned really anything about payment of taxes in any of his teachings that we are aware of in the gospels. He's not even mentioned the government and has taken no position about the injustice of the Romans occupying the Holy Land of Judea. And yet his critics come to him seeking to trap Jesus in a debate about paying taxes to Caesar. As I said, taxes are a hot topic for us uh, right now in our overheated political climate. And... As Katie indicated, no one I know enjoys paying taxes, but imagine if you were paying your taxes to a foreign force, an occupying force that has come and crushed your homes, smashed your temple, torn down your flags, and now is demanding that you pay taxes. That's what we're talking about here. In this gospel text, we see members of two opposing first century religious parties kind of teaming up in an effort to trick Jesus. They ask, what does it mean for a person of faith to be faithful and patriotic in our day, Jesus? The way they phrased it was, tell us, Jesus, since you are so smart and always have an honest answer for any question that is asked of you, is it proper for those who follow you to pay taxes to the emperor, to Caesar, or not. So on one side of this unlikely alliance of questioners were the Herodians, members of a party within Judaism that basically kept their power by forging alliances with the occupying Roman forces. The Herodians, as their name applies, right? Herod, 
believed that compromise was the only way for the people of faith to survive in Israel under Roman rule. And so they advocated paying the poll tax, just go ahead and pay it as a way of appeasing the Roman overlords. Those are the Herodians. On the opposite side of the debate were the Pharisees, and we have encountered them several times throughout these weeks in Matthew's Gospel, a group of religious leaders who rigorously held to the teachings of the law of Moses and the prophets who believed that compromising with these heathens and heretics was antithetical to the faith of the Jewish people. It was heresy of the worst sort. But these two groups, who are usually opposed to each other, the, Her- the Herodians and the Pharisees, decided that they saw in Jesus a common threat, a kind of common enemy. People were going to this itinerant Jewish rabbi and asking him stuff about the kingdom of God. And they were, they were coming to him for healing and for, for advice. So they teamed up. And they thought they could trap Jesus with this question. If he responded in favor of the Herodians, agreeing that taxes should be paid to Caesar, then he would be seen by the followers of the Pharisees, the religious faithful, uh, that he's weak on the Mosaic law and he's given into the oppressive government, right? So Jesus has no way to win in answering this question. Either way, He's ostracized and offended a large group of the faithful. So, in each major town around Judea, the Romans had placed statues of Caesar, not only proclaiming that Caesar was in power, controlling everything, but that Caesar ought to be revered, worshipped even as a a supreme divine being. Caesar is God was the inscription on the coin that is about to be handed to Jesus. Imagine, most of the Jewish faithful were terribly angered by this idolatry. Some, like the Herodians, attempted to get along with the Romans. Others, like the Pharisees, wanted nothing to do with it. There was a time when the Romans even tried to revolt, but they were, or the, the Herodians tried to revolt, but they were quickly stamped out by the Roman overlords, crushed. But it demonstrated that the faith of Israel was in great part a question of worship. To whom do we owe our greatest allegiance? So along comes this group made up of Herodians and Pharisees, and they start out by flattering Jesus. Good teacher, they call him. We see that you show no partiality to anyone, which they have to kind of be thinking is a sort of backhanded insult, because that's all these guys do is show partiality. I mean, to be a Herodian, you follow a very strict set of principles, rules, and religious dogmas. And if you do, then you're in. And if you don't, then you're out. The Pharisees were even more so. They recognized 613 religious laws. If you kept all 613 perfectly, you were inside the circle. If you did not, you were out. All these guys did was show partiality. They come to Jesus and say, good teacher. We see that you show no partiality to anyone. Isn't that great? They're not thinking it's great. Jesus doesn't really answer the question that they ask about paying taxes. He asks another question. He says, hand, hand me a coin. They do. He says, whose, whose head is this? What title is this? And they say, that, that's Caesar. And Jesus says, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And I I think the the Pharisee looked at the 
at the Herodian and said, Ha! And then they went, Wait, what? What did he say? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Jesus changes the question. When he replies to their test and asks whose image is on this coin, he's referring us back to Genesis 2, where we are created in the image of God. We're about to splash in the waters of baptism where we are reminded that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. We have God's image stamped on us in our baptisms. The coin belongs to Caesar. You belong to God. You see what Jesus has done here? He's taken a political question about paying taxes at a heated political time, and made it a worship question. In whose image are you stamped? Who is the object of your highest devotion? To whom do you belong? Our culture today is dominated by politics, to be sure. You often hear in parties and polite company, you shouldn't speak of religion or politics, and I have long said, I think you can get away talking about religion. It's politics you can't touch, right? Tell me you don't agree with the substitutionary theory of atonement, and I say, well, not positive I even get what that's about. And Heck, you tell me that you believe Jesus was probably a good teacher and all, a wise rabbi, but... The thing about him being God incarnate, that's a bit of a stretch too far for me. And I'll probably say, well, we we all have our own beliefs. But watch your liberal sister stumble into a discussion with your conservative uncle at Thanksgiving over, you know, border security or taxes or health care. Then all hell breaks loose, right? Regardless of what your theology of the afterlife is, right? You can talk about religion. It's politics that gets us worked up. And it's striking how Jesus appears to care less about the searing hot politics of his day. There they are with a coin with Caesar's idolatrous image of it, declaring Caesar to be God, asking what they thought was a trick political question about paying taxes, and Jesus makes it about worship. He turns our attention to what we should value most. Always, every time, without exception. He's turning our attention to our neighbor in need. Those left out by a culture that does nothing better than show partiality. By telling some, you are out, and others, you are in. The greatest among you will be your servant, Jesus is about to say in Matthew's Gospel. John Calvin famously said in one of my favorite quotes, That the human mind is a permanent factory of idols. We are so inclined to look for some means other than God for our security, our protection, our comfort. For some of us, it's a particular political party. 
But for others, it's a, an addiction or a self-image or a standard of living. The list is endless, really. The human mind is an endless factory of idols. Jesus calls us back to the first commandment of our faith. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You are stamped in his image and he has delivered you from slavery to sin. This is where Jesus shows us that sometimes even our most cherished values, political and otherwise, become golden calves, idols. And he calls us back to the font. To the community that defines us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And yes, this identity will cost us something. I cannot honestly tell you otherwise. A life filled with meaning and purpose and connection and community and compassion is not the easy life. You've got your own problems, but you are asked in this community to make your neighbor's problems your own problems. Not the easy life. But it is the abundant life. We are about to witness and remember in the waters of baptism the promise that will be spoken at each of our funerals. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So will we sing of the abundant life and then continue to live in it together. There's a place where sin and shame are powerless, where my heart has peace with God and forgiveness, where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down at the cross. At the cross, I surrender my life. I began with the question, what is the abundant life? What does it mean to you? What does it look like? How do you know if you're living it? And my contention is that you, you're not going to access it fully through the prosperity gospel, through this kind of idea that you can buy your way into it, that God's just waiting for you to act uh, faithfully, usually by giving uh, some amount to some particular location in order to activate God's goodwill on your behalf. God has declared again this morning, I'm not waiting for you. I've come to get you. Uh, the, the power of your ability to be a positive thinker is likely going to fail you right at the moment you need it the most. So today we are reminded in the waters of baptism that God claims you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God loves you as we've been singing. And that this gospel is going to cost us something because it's going to turn us toward our neighbor in need. And as God holds on to us, and we hold on to this gospel, uh, in honor of, of Tom Petty, uh, we will not back down. huh? And there is no easy way out, right? Uh, but it is the abundant life. We live it together. Those who suffer and those who rejoice, we live it together. So we go now in peace to love and serve the Lord. 
Thanks be to God.